Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our guest today is Charlotte M. Mathis, and our topic is Twice Lost, Death of a Schizophrenic Son. Dr. Charlotte Mathis is a certified Jungian analyst and a graduate of the C.J. Young Institute in Zurich, Switzerland. She received her doctoral degree in psychoanalysis from the Union Graduate School in Cincinnati and is a clinical member of the American Association of Marriage and Family Counselors, as well as a board-certified supervisor for clinical social workers. Her son, Duncan, developed schizophrenia in his late teens and subsequently took his own life. He was thus twice lost. Dr. Mathis has been in private practice in New Orleans for over 20 years. She lectures and leads seminars in Jungian psychology, family therapy, and bereavement. Welcome to the show, Charlotte. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on. Well, you have been through quite a bit down there in New Orleans, haven't you? Yes, we have. We have had the hurricane three years ago where I really saw many, many people hurt, losing everything, some of them losing children, but other many more just losing their whole home and all their photographs and everything that they ever, ever that ever was dear to them. Mm. And now is coming the post-traumatic stress as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Initially, people were just in a state of shock, and they had a lot to do just to try to get their living quarters together. But now I think they're beginning to be able to grieve. Mm. But, yeah, and we do forget, don't we, that losing all your possessions, sometimes we think it's just the death of a, a family member, although there were deaths down there certainly, but the whole full trauma of it is is really quite incredible, isn't it? It really is. And the thing that people um, mourn the most, I think, after an actual death is the death of their photographs and mementos mm-hmm. that a family acquires over the years and that can't be replaced. Mm-hmm. I was I was going to say that. And, you know, it's such an unacknowledged loss. I mean, to lose things, pictures of people that you loved and that have died and that cannot be replaced is a huge loss. And to lose the comfort of your home, I mean, those, those are real losses for people. That's very true. So, Charlotte, um, could you tell us a little bit about uh, your son Duncan's um, illness and his death? And Because I know those folks out there who have mentally ill family members who have died, and, and uh, as your son did kill himself, like uh, George also. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I could. Um, first of all, I think that there are a lot of suicides that really... Um, have to do with some undiagnosed bipolar illness. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes parents, in retrospect, can look back and see that there was something going on that needed attention medically and maybe or maybe has been given attention medically. And they feel then um, a little bit uh, less guilt for the the suicide of their child. uh, bipolar illness um, results in more suicide than uh, than schizophrenia. Mm, but, I didn't um, realize that. But schizophrenia is a more debilitating illness. Um, a bipolar patient who's regulated can lead a pretty um, active, productive life, 
whereas with schizophrenics, it's a lot more difficulty because they have uh, language difficulties and affect difficulties that keep them from really functioning according to the degree of the illness, of mm-hmm. course. However, when they're children, they look, um, you know, fairly normal, don't they? Your son, Duncan, was an amazing child. In your book, um, A Sword Shall Pierce Your Heart, you talk about him. He was, what, in Oliver, and he, he was just an amazing he was. person, wasn't he? You know, he, and I don't like to put too much emphasis on this because any child that dies is equal in, to any other child. And so I don't like to just talk about all the, how wonderful he was, but it is worth talking about in, in regards to the shock that comes. Right. Because, you know, when my kid was growing up, he was known in the city, and we got a lot of praise. And then um, when he started being acting a little bizarre and we didn't know what... And, and about what age was that, Charlotte? About um, 16. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. At first, I thought it was the artist coming out. In I was going to say, you might just think, well, he's a, three, a theatrical, dramatic child. That's true. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I, when I saw him on um, television on, what is that, MT, that Music TV, MTV? Yeah, MTV. Mm-hmm. That was with his band? He was with his band, but it was that night, for some reason, I looked at him and I thought, there is something really wrong with this mm-hmm. child. And... I don't know why he wasn't any more, he wasn't behaving bizarrely or anything. It was just the look in his face. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, he finally did uh, get, we finally did get help for him. And and we, how did you know he needed it? Well, he finally asked for help. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, but not in the way of wanting to be in any way hospitalized. He still thought that um, mental illness was a um, was not real. His band members kept talking him into that. But he did finally one day call me and and tell, well, he didn't really ask for help. He said he had a new suit and he wanted to go to church with me. That's how it started. And then I did was able to get him in the hospital. And then... The, was he self-medicating? That's, that's what I was wondering. That was exactly my question. I think that he was using alcohol a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't know about any drugs I do know that that's usually the way that that um, people children or young um, youngsters suffering from these illnesses do try to medicate themselves right, in right. some way because Which makes it so difficult for parents to know if if there's a if there's a problem with drugs or alcohol or something else going on well, I think the parents are always the last ones to know about a child right. being on drugs anyway, don't you? Yeah, I think so. Um, but really, until you get the child in a safe, contained place and and have tests run and all, you don't know. We didn't find um, drugs in, in Duncan. We did find alcohol on the night that he um, died, but he'd been working all day, so it had just been a couple beers or something. And he just mm-hmm. came home and shot himself, right? Duncan, um, let me just go back a little bit. As long as he was denying that he was ill and um, saying that it was artistic and everything, he was okay. And then, but then, as he began to have to realize um, how his life was limited, he quit or had to leave college. And actually, he was working as a busboy in a restaurant, so his life became very, very limited. he had a girlfriend. She lived at our home, and um, 
he came home from being the busboy at Brennan's restaurant one Sunday and called me first and said, is there anything you need? I can stop by the store. And I said, no, thank you. And came home. We were all in the kitchen, and he went upstairs in, in the loft and shot himself. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether he um, he had been hearing voices about one particular song that he'd written having um, adverse effects to people, but I don't know why that was that in, impulsive moment when he killed himself. Wow. He must have planned it because he had to find a gun somewhere, and he found a hunting gun that had belonged to someone. And he must have had it up there in the loft. But I don't know um, why he finally, and that, at that moment. Well, I just wanted to mention Charlotte's book again. If you go to our blog, thegriefblog.com, you can see the book uh, up there listed. And it's called, And a Sword Shall Pierce Your Heart, Moving from Despair to Meaning After the Death of a Child. It's a, a really uh, wonderful book. With I, We can't even begin to touch all the information today that's in this book. It, she just covers a realm of, of uh, areas. So I wanted to, uh, when we went to break, we were talking a little bit about uh, Duncan's death and how he took us on live. And I wanted to talk a little bit about two two subjects that I know people have asked us a lot about. One is um, having mental illness and having a child die. I know that there's a lot of angst leading up to that, isn't there, Charlotte, taking care of a mentally ill child? It is. Um it's a lifetime job, and sometimes now I look along, around um, mothers particularly who are struggling with mentally ill, and I think in one sense I was freed because if the mother, it's always left for the mother to, to take care of the child, even the adult child, and even when the child gets really into the 40s or something and then the parents think that they're going to be dying, they have to think about how there's enough money for this child and... And there's constant worry through the years about not so much about what I think is uh, erroneously thought that the mentally ill person will harm someone, but more that he will be harmed by someone. Mm-hmm. Because there's no more aggressive action in uh, schizophrenic than there is in the normal population. But there is an awful lot of vict- uh, schizophrenics who become victims. Hmm. That, that's interesting. Or... That's good to know because I think people have this this idea that that a schizophrenic would be a dangerous person and aggressive. That's very true. They do, and you know, they don't even want to have homes where for schizophrenics in certain neighborhoods. Right. There's a lot of there's a lot of misinformation about the schizophrenic. My son was ne- never um, aggressive, and um, he was aggressive against himself and his own paranoia about his own guilt, I think, but not towards other people. Mm-hmm. Now, um, when, you, when you say that you felt freed, how many years has it been? Duncan died in 1989, and I think that my, um, I think that it was about 10 years after his death when I felt joy and you know, a really good feeling about wanting to be alive and liking what I was doing um, in my work as a result of what had happened with me and finding um, a lot of meaning out of his death because a death, any kind of death of a child, is a life-changing event. Mm-hmm. Life changes. Right. So, the idea people tell us there there was before 
There was before and, then there's and after. there was after. Yeah. And so you've got to make some meaning or find some meaning or make some meaning mm-hmm. to start this life, new life that you You know, I, I'm glad you talked about 10 years because I've said, I think, a, a eight for the death of a child at least. I mean, it's it's a long, not that you don't suffer less as time goes on if you're working through, but to feel that real joy again and find meaning in it, as you've said, it is a long-term process. Can you talk a little bit about that process? You've talked a little bit about the feelings of anger in your book, guilt, yeah. shame, and entitlement. Can you talk about well, that, maybe starting my, with the in anger? In my modality, of, uh, we talk about shadow, which means the more negative feelings that we have in life of guilt, a- anger, shame, entitlement. Those are the four big ones I, I like to talk about in terms of, of child death. Um, guilt, for instance, that's a big one with suicide and with accidents. If a child has an accident mm-hmm. and dies or with suicide, the parents always feel a lot of, not always, but often feel a lot of guilt. And we have to come to terms eventually whether this is neurotic guilt that one puts as a defense because it's a lot easier sometimes to wallow in guilt than it is to look and say, things happen beyond my control. Mm-hmm. That is really scary. Well, yeah, it, the thing is we're supposed to take care of our children, right, Absolutely. and our siblings. Heidi was an older sibling, and, and you're supposed and to take care of them. And it's frightening, as you said, to think that some things are out of our control. Some things are. And, you know, once we learn that in life, then after a while it settles down and we are able to accept that and with a sense of humility. But it's a hard lesson to learn, and it takes a long time to learn it, I think. I sometimes tell people they're going to have to surrender eventually to that idea. Right. That you're not in control. That's very well put, Gloria. They do have to surrender to it. We all do. Mm -hmm. And with that, I think, comes, um, as I say, a sense of humility and uh, a sense of compassion uh, for other human beings rather than maybe before the child died when we might have tended to be a little judgmental about something. Mm-hmm. Talk about the entitlement idea. I thought that was fascinating because people talk, you know, quite a bit about anger and shame, but entitlement, that's interesting. Yeah, and I think that's a, really a biggie. I mean, it it's not, it, this is not something that a newly bereaved parent should even worry about. This is something that comes years along the way when you start evaluating your own reaction to this life-changing event. And what one comes to realize is as the years go by, we find more and more people whose children have died, and we find circumstances in, in which they've died, and we look at the world and in general and other countries, and we see children die, many, many. We don't have a child we are given a child for a while. And so once we realize this compassion, co-passion means I suffered, you suffered, then I... I like that, we, co-passion. Yeah, we can really um, not be so self-pitying. Now, why did this happen to me? We can let go of that. Right. Well, I know there are a lot of people that are angry out there right now. Uh, what what do you have to say for them and, and your thoughts about that, particularly maybe early on, particularly if they're sometimes suicide or murder or, you know, people who are going through these horrendous events? 
Well, I mean, you've got to be able to release that anger. Uh, I don't mean by going out and shooting somebody, but be able to really have a catharsis where you are able to verbalize that anger, and you have to be able to recognize it and not deny it. It is a very human reaction to, mm-hmm. to a loss. And the people that are harmed, I think, with anger are those that have steeled themselves in such a rigid way that they won't allow it to um, be seen. They won't see it themselves, and they think others aren't seeing it. And so it comes out in all kinds of insidious ways, uh, passive-aggressive behavior, pontificating about things, all um, you know, I found that um, being because you know being this far out in grief, and I'm sure you found this. I found uh, people who are nearly bereaved can be uh, uh, pretty edgy. You know, they can get upset about about small things, oh, sure. and and they don't even recognize it. They, you know, and I'm sure I was the same way. I felt I know, justified. I you know, if you didn't arrive on time or you didn't bring the right food, or I don't know. Did you find yourself being edgy, Heidi? Oh, absolutely. And I do. Yeah. I have. Um, mm-hmm. I have still in my heart the sadness that I think I lost one friend because of that. Mm-hmm. And I was unable to recoup that friendship, though I tried. Right. I um, think that, yeah, like you said, being angry early on is, is a really normal emotion. But I want to talk a little bit about her book, um, And a Sword Shall Pierce Your Heart, Moving from Despair to Meaning After the Death of a Child. This is on our um, blog, thegriefblog.com. You can see it there. You can order it. And I wanted Charlotte to talk a little bit about the book because um, I probably have kind of led you to believe that maybe it is about uh, just um, uh, death of a schizophrenic child, and it certainly isn't. Charlotte, can you talk a little bit about all the wonderful information you have in here? Well, the book is a a result of a lot of uh, research that I did with women whose children had died, and it was the kind of research where we shared, not where we just measured anything scientifically. And I um, found that there's so many different situations. There's the unlived life, the mother who really wants to be pregnant and can't get pregnant, and then there's the early death of a fetus, and then there are children who die after a long illness or with AIDS or uh, accidents, negligent homicide, and even now I had have interviewed women whose sons died in, in Iraq, as well as murder and suicide. So each one has its own um, individual problems. For example, if you look at the child who dies after a long illness, there's a long time there where the parent is struggling with on the one hand, trying to have the child live as normal a life as possible, and yet, on the other hand, kind of preparing for the child's death. Mm-hmm. And you know with AIDS, the stigma about that. You certainly know about the guilt involved with accidents and the absolute fury involved with murder and negligent homicide. So we all struggle somewhat with the same things, but there's also... an a particularity and um, that we struggle with according to how the child passed away. Could you talk a little bit about, say, the guilt in accidents? Because we have a lot of listeners whose children have died in accidents or siblings. There again, I think that there's, there is the possibility that the parent is negligent and the accident has occurred because of the parent's um, own negligence. And that is 
something that one must grapple with and really very slowly come to forgive themselves for. But most of the time, in my experiences anyway, um, the parents fabricate, fabricate a lot of guilt, as I said before, by particularly because they don't want to think that something could happen beyond their control and that they were or really couldn't protect their child. So they will go through um, a scenario over and over again, if only I had not done this, if only I had not done that, um, then um, this accident would not have occurred. Mm -hmm. And that idea that we can control the world. And that we can control the world. Well, do you have any thoughts, uh, Heidi's a sibling here, I know you wrote a little on siblings, do you have any thought on that as far as uh, these issues of anger, guilt, and shame go? Well, I think Heidi is is obviously one who's come through this in a in a positive way and made some meaning out of it. That's not always the case. Mm-hmm. Siblings often get stuck. They're they're afraid to live their life and even though it's sometimes largely unconscious, you'll find that they will decide not to marry or decide not to go into a further degree and um feel like any moment, you know, that their life could also be taken away from them. They also, of course, feel a lot of guilt about Mm -hmm. how come I was left to live. Mm -hmm. And the parent's attitude has a lot to do with that, too. If they try to make a replacement child out of the child that is left, um, or if they try to overprotect the child too much, then that is of great hindrance to the sibling. Um, But there are, I think chances for siblings to get together. I think they have sibling group and compassionate friends, for example, and it's very important, I think, for them to talk with their peers about these experiences, peers who have had the experience, because kids in high school or grade school don't know how to talk about the loss of the, that their friend has experienced, I mm-hmm. think. And Heidi, you're doing some sibling groups I, now. Yeah, I've run a lot of sibling groups, and, and Charlotte, you're making such a good point because when we all get together and talk about our guilt and anger, we realize that what we're going through is normal mm-hmm. and that other siblings are experiencing the same thing and we don't feel so different and strange. And survivor guilt is such a common thread and experience. I mean, I had so much guilt that my parents had lost their only son and that there were three living daughters. Uh-huh. And I really felt like it should have been me because how dare I live when my only brother was dead. It was... And I thought that was such a crazy feeling until I got together with other siblings and realized that survivor guilt is pretty universal. Well, the word that you just used, I think, is is good to dwell on a moment because people really do feel crazy until mm-hmm. they talk to someone else with the same experiences. Mm-hmm. And this is true of mothers also who sometimes have supernatural experiences with their children where they... they um, feel like the child has come to them in a dream or that they feel the presence of a child. And I think that this is a natural part. Yeah, I was going to say in your book you say don't minimize those. Don't minimize. I think that was really an important thing for me. I think they are real. And I have found that mothers very rarely talk about those things because they don't want people to think they're kooky. And yet, if you talk to mothers whose children have died over and over again, they will have a very special experiences in which the child is present in one way or another. Or or where they they talk to you before they died. 
Absolutely. You know, there uh, Scott sat down and talked to uh, Heather, his younger Heidi's younger sister, and her friend, and said, "If something should happen to me, I know I go to a better place." Mm-hmm. And that's very odd for a seventeen-year-old to be saying that to a fourteen-year-old. It really is. But if you don't keep those, it's good to journal those kind of things because if you don't keep them, you start thinking maybe they weren't real. Absolutely. If your mind will play a trick and just in a few minutes you will watered it down to nothing. And yet it is so important, I think, to begin to heal that way and to begin to let the spiritual aspect enter into your life because it is a big part of the healing process. Yeah, and I love the... Um the kind of get-togethers, I don't know how to say this, but I love being able to visit the person we've loved through dream time. Oh, it not it wonderful? Yeah. It is, you wake up so um, vitalized, I think. Mm-hmm. But I have to also say um, that there may be some very traumatic dreams about a child's death, and it is really, really scary, especially if it's been a, a murder or a suicide, a violent death, you know, the, 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 there's the recurring dream that happens in um, post-traumatic stress, the same horrible dream over and over and over again. And when you start to heal, one small element of that dream will change, mm-hmm. and you can watch the changes in your own dreams when that has occurred so that you know that through your dreams that you are, your psyche is healing. Well, now, we, if, we okay. had, I'm sorry, we had, I had somebody that um, lost a spouse in the World Trade Center, and her dream, reoccurring dream, because they found him huddled with his friends, the firefighters together, and her reoccurring dream was that they were huddled in fear over and over and over and terrified as the towers were coming down. And she was able to make a shift after doing some work with me and realized that maybe they were huddled in peace and that's, we're embracing each other in a peaceful way at the end. That's a very, that's a wonderful example. And in my own um, fear with Duncan, because he would wander out at night, and I was afraid he was going to be, I don't know what was, killed or something, and I had these terrible dreams about him being hurt by someone on the, in, in the outside. And then one time, and they would have red flags, and then one time I had the dream, and all the red flags became a symphony. It's one of the mm-hmm. only times I ever heard music in my dream. And I knew then that I was healing. Mm-hmm. Now, now, uh, do you have any suggestions for people who are, are having this nightmare dream? Too? I don't know how you worked with this uh, person, Heidi. Um, do you two have any ideas of how you can move people that are having nightmares, do you talk, do journals? I know you talk about some self-talk to Charlotte about um, about talk about creating images, a new home for your child. Right, to... I think that's really a, a wonderful way for anybody, if particularly people who are agnostic or don't have any particular religion affiliation or background where they can imagine, because. So much of our life is imagination anyway. You imagine what your kid's doing when they're in college, and you imagine what your friend's doing today. And we need to imagine something about our child in the beyond. And it's Mm -hmm. very, very comforting to do so. If we find a place that is a safe place to put the child and to go when one chooses to communicate with him, I think it's very helpful. And I have found people who 
don't have any religious background at all and are still pretty skeptical, they still like going to that imaginary place and believing that that's where their child is headed. And you could put them in a special flower or on a cloud or, of you course. know, or in a garden or, mm-hmm. you know, depending on what you... Um, and they can also become what we call a psychopomp because they are informed by death. So in many ways, they know something we don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes children can come with wisdom and help um, a parent who is grieving um, reach a, a, a wise decision through that wisdom of the child. That's nice. Well, could mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about alone time and creating a, a sacred space and time? That's really important, and and you mothers out there who have a lot of other children and have a job and demands upon yourself, it's it's almost hard to find. I, I write about one woman who found a little space in the closet where she would go, but we all need... Sometimes you just have to go into the bathroom and lock the door for a minute. And do that, but we do need that quiet alone time for reflection or prayer and prayer in whatever way uh, one one's tradition, but I think prayer where you empty yourself and let see what comes in. That can be kind of a scary thought early on. It is scary, but it to me sometimes we busy ourselves so much talking about what we want and what needs to be changed that we don't listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking uh, early on somebody might want to move into that kind of thing by journaling if they're if they can't just is, sit there. Well, I think journaling is what really. If I had to think back on it, I had no idea I was going to write a book. I, it this just happened, and I think it started with my journaling. And actually, there are a couple places in here where all I did was lift from the journal and put it in the book. So it was so helpful to me to, to journal. And um, I'm, I never considered myself a writer, but it just kind of grew into that. But it doesn't have to grow into that. It's really for your personal. It's concretizing. You have to... Put something into words in order to get it down on the paper. And when you put it into words, it takes that huge blog of gray blog that is covering over you and you chip away at it in a way. And I think it's very healing. Did you journal, Heidi? You know what? I did and I'm thinking I I had to know that no one else was going to read it. And you eventually may publish it, but when you're writing... Write for yourself. Don't think about you, that. Right, right. Then you can be open and honest and let it all out and be completely raw and because you think that it's not going to go anywhere else. And mm-hmm. that's when we're really the healing can begin. Charlotte's website is www.charlottemathis.com. Right, Charlotte? Right. And it's wonderful. It's got beautiful music on it. She has her books on it. There's links to other, other things. And there's... What else is on here, Charlotte? I'm looking at it right now. Methods, approaches. Well, I just, you know, I do a lot of um, seminars and um, talks, if, if anybody. I don't get the group together myself, but if anybody has a group and is interested in that, I'm, I'm available for that. 
Well, that that would be great because uh, you're just uh, full of information. But you know, Charlotte, the the thing that I find most impressive about you is how you have moved on. And we have so many wonderful people on the show that have done the same thing. It's just such a message of hope for all those folks out there. You're going to make it. It's tough. We know, don't we, Charlotte and Heidi? It is going to happen. And I think in the end, we have to know that it's an act of grace. We can we do what we can to heal. We exercise and try to eat right and go through our our journaling and uh, other ways I think are good, anything creative like gardening. But we have to be patient. And then all of a sudden I think we just start to feel a little joy. Mm-hmm. And it grows. And we also get an amazing amount of courage, don't we? I mean, you um, moved to uh, Spain, right? After you know, Duncan died, and then you went on to to do well, the Jungian thing. We've already had the worst thing happen. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah. well, of course. There well, it feels to you, of course. It, yeah. it me. tears you in life in many ways because you feel like, okay, if I can survive this, then what? I else? can survive anything. Yeah, I do feel that way. And you and you also talk a little bit in the book about ask yourself what your child would want you to do, right? Or what your brother would want you to do, right, Heidi? Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's a great idea. And sometimes it's very important if there if there's been conflict, if a teenager has died, and it's in, where there's been conflict with the parent, to work through all that by letter writing and uh, work through it just as you would as if the if the child were living to heal the relationship. And that's unfortunately happens, um, particularly with uh, teenagers who either die in an accident or an overdrug, a drug overdose or something that they've done that is against the parents' wishes. Mm-hmm. And we kind of have to give up the why. Oh, absolutely. Well, there's no answer. Mm-hmm. We have to connect with the mystery of life. Oh, I like that, with the mystery of life. And maybe see it as a beautiful thing that there is mystery. Yes. And we can't know all. Right, and it's, it's like uh, the Joseph Campbell saying that I have. We must be willing to give up the life that we have planned so that we can embrace the life that is waiting for us. That is wonderful. Mm -hmm. I think that's wonderful, and it's true. Yeah, there are really wonderful things waiting. And and as you say, the the loss of the fear um, is pretty amazing. Right. When you work it through. But I, I was very fearful. First, I remember my husband started locking our bedroom door, like the intruder of death was going to arrive That's at any true. moment. We have to. We think that we there again is this a control issue? You know, mm-hmm. we think well, this has happened. Now we've got to con- control everything else in our lives, so nothing else will happen. But I think that slowly goes away. Mm-hmm. The one thing that I have found, um, in I did in the questions that I asked these all, these women that I interviewed, and they were from. Stages. I did not work with anyone at that time when I was doing this research whose child had been um, passed away less than two years because the first couple years are just so full of shock. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But most of the women that I worked with said that one of the ways that they have changed, I mean, this was, was that they had so much increased compassion. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that came out of it, and I had just read your art, the letter that you wrote to the guy from the Chicago Tribune, is that women have all said, 
I will never stop grieving the death of my child. And that doesn't mean that you can't dance with joy at the same time that the grieving is going on. Mm -hmm. But it isn't that Freudian decathect and forget about it. Right. That does not happen. The closure kind of thing? No. No, we always say closures are for houses or whatever. And I don't think we wanted to. No. Well, it's always with you. It's part of the fabric of your life. I, I always feel like we suffer so much early on that it's the suffering that finally leaves us, not not mm-hmm. the memories. Mm-hmm. That I think that's what leaves us. Well, Charlotte, thank you so much for being on the show. It's really wonderful. And uh, I hope people will go to your website and get your book and uh, just wonderful information there. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks, Charlotte. And maybe we'll meet someday. Hopefully we will. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.